we allow people the space to get in there and figure it out. So yes, that initial sprint or two, um, or maybe three, takes a lot, you don't get a lot of throughput, right? Because a majority of those work items uh, require a lot of investigation and learning. So if you're gonna make the transition of internally developed focus to revenue focused, is you, you have to work the customer into your process. Welcome to this week's Change Agent Podcast. I'm Nathan Lesnowski, Concurrency's Chief Technology Officer. I am your host today. I am so happy to be with you to talk about the instrumental change that technology leaders are making in their businesses. We have had just awesome guests on this program, uh, from people talking about change itself to talking about the circles that we live in, to data and analytics, to software development, to transforming payment industries, infrastructure, and so many awesome topics. Today is no different. We have a fantastic guest today. We have Matthew Bingham, who is the Director of Development at JJ Keller. Matthew is an awesome leader. He is transformative the way he leads the development organization at JJ Keller. He has so much great knowledge to offer to us today. He'll be talking a lot about how you build successful development teams, how you transform them with modern technologies, some of the hurdles that you might be going through, and ways that you can bring that to your organization from learnings that he's experienced. So welcome to the program, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to, to discuss uh, you know, certain elements of change and leadership with you, so I awesome, appreciate awesome. you having me on. All right, Matt. Well, why don't we start with start with the beginning? You know, as you've been thinking about building development teams and building them in a successful way for a modern ecosystem, you know, what what are the building blocks? What are the parts of that that uh, you found are just absolutely necessary in order to build a successful development and product development team? You know, I, it, it comes down to me to one fundamental building block, and that's to create. A, an ecosystem that elevates developers every single day. So you you have to work in um, that kind of elevation for your team right into your development process. So a, just from the structure, um, what I like to have are architect or senior developers that are like your tech leads, right? And, and in some organizations that can sometimes be the associate manager, the team leader of a team, but but kind of that tech leader that is there to help um, to help shape the team. So when work comes in, they're there to be um, you know thought leaders, answer questions, help the team get through any type of technical hurdles. So just the team structure in and of itself, I like to always have those those senior level uh, folks that work right alongside you know the dev ones and the dev twos in the group um, in in a consistent team, right? So you're you're in standups together. You know each other, you get to know each other's kind of quirks and understand how each other works. So I like to work that into the structure. Another way we elevate our developers is we we work um, code reviews right into our process. So that's a big thing for us. It, it kind of came with a little bit of consternation from the team when we first said, hey, we want to code review everything. But over time, people have really enjoyed having that direct conduit into an architect or a senior developer. So they put their PR in, they get comments back, and those comments are on, hey, this is a more efficient way to do this, or you might have missed something here, or this might have a security gap. And 
So every time they put a PR in and that code is reviewed from somebody that's more senior than they are, they are getting elevated. They are learning something, being better. And it's it's always the mantra of if you're better when you leave than you were when you came in, we've done our job. And that's that I think is the, the most fundamental building block of having a successful development team. Oh, awesome. I, I, I love that, that does, that's so people-centric, right? You're, you're, you're thinking about it in the context of, I've got individuals, those individuals have goals that they want to accomplish in their careers. We're part of that journey. Maybe we're a part of the journey for a long time. And our responsibility is to form teams that are self-improving in a sense. Yeah, it is. They're self-sustaining, self-improving, and it is people-centric because, I mean, you still need people to develop the code. The technology is going to come. The technology is going to change. You look five, seven years ago, you know, you and I talked that five, seven years ago, there were no change agents of like cloud migrations. There were no, you know, not a lot of resources. And you you, you fast forward five to seven years and, and those resources are now here. So that technology is going to change and, and you'll keep up with it. But but having a self-elevating, self-sustaining team to me is one of, is, is that that fundamental building block. Oh, got it. You know, when you think about the construction of that, is consistency of the team important? You know, creating a group of people that know how to take in requests, know how to take in features that they're building, sort it to the right person, work together as a team, uh, that the leader's actively involved. You know, what's the nature of that for you? Um, you know, the to me, the consistency is key. I, I you know, I, I think if you look at it from a developer's perspective of context switching between teams and trying to get used to different things or even used to different technologies or solutions. Um, it, it can be a little bit daunting. And I know that we we expect some of our more senior people to do that, but I I love to have consistency within the team. And, and it goes to what you were just saying of, of you get to know how to work with each other. Um, the more you work with an architect, the more you understand what it is they're looking for in their code review. So when you when you put in a code review and you get you know 50 comments back, and it could be a little distraught, you know, you could be a little daunting. But in 10 code reviews from now, you get one back with only two comments back. Now you're learning, and now you're learning their ways, and and they're learning kind of how you code, and and it just it, it really is nice to have that consistency. I think it, it it actually makes the team more efficient when there's more consistency with the team, in my opinion. Oh, okay. Now, when you think about governing the way that the priorities of the team, you know, from, you know, from producing something for the business to readying themselves to be ready for the next thing, you know, education, understanding where they're going to go next, what the next technology is, but then also having a responsibility to produce, you know, how do you, how do you, organize those priorities for the team and make sure that you're accomplishing all of them? Well, we have, um, we're a, a, a pretty standard product development organization. So we have a product team and we have a development team and, and our product team is out there trying to figure out what's going to, you know, what enhancements are going to go into our solutions and then, you know, kind of work that work into our development team. Um, so a lot of the priority is set from the product team, but we, we actually, the development team actually has, um, our development leaders have a seat in the prioritization meeting along with our sales and our marketing. So we get to bring some of our own priority into that Mm. discussion and make sure that we're, um, 
that we're working on the things that that we need to just just to keep the lights on. So, you know, for instance, you can't tech debt is is a big thing now, right? Especially when you're on the cloud, you're at the mercy of how fast the cloud is moving. And eventually they're just going to say, if you're still, if you still use these libraries, they're just not going to work anymore. So you can't, you can't just leave a server sitting in a server room now and not touch it for 10 years because you don't want to break by an update. So you're, you're going to have to keep up with those things. And that's why we have a much larger seat at the table now. So we can help um, put those priorities along with other enhancements and security requirements and those types of things. So that's that's how we prioritize. And I think you also asked about how do we get and kind of stay in front of the technology? How do we see what's next? What what we like to do and the reason why I like to have an architect assigned to each team is because that architect is the one that's out there. Um, it, it, in, in our environment, our architects are our tech leaders. They're the ones making our technical decisions on where we're going to go, not not the dev leaders, which may be a little bit weird for some people, but the trust in the in the technical direction is all at our architect level. Um, so they're out there figuring out where we're going to go next from a technology perspective. But also, if there's if there's like a major feature coming up, our architects are you know a month ahead of our development group and working with our product teams and putting down solutions and designs for what will be that next you know, kind of large feature. So by the time it's ready for the development team, we have an understanding of the deliverable, we have an understanding of the technical solution and um, the work items are in there and they're defined and they're, um, and they're re- basically ready for the development team to get to, to start grooming them and working on them, which makes them more efficient versus waiting until grooming to start talking about a design solution, which really slows that down. So I try and I try and keep a couple of those senior techs out in front of the dev group. So by the time they get to it, it's it's ready to go. Man, you hit on two really key key points there. One being that the inclusion of the tech debt needs, the platform needs of the development team and the platform itself being in, included into the priorities that are being developed by the product development team is critical. And that, yes. that understanding that that's what keeps us going down the road with a certain degree of velocity versus we're going down at 80 miles an hour and then we hit the gravel road and, oh, crud, I'm gonna, I can't do this anymore because the road right. isn't, isn't nice and smooth for me. We have to have this sort of cadence we can sustain with the tech debt that keeps with it. That was, that's a huge point. And then mm-hmm. the other is just, that the architect part of the architect's responsibility is to know what what are the things we need to be looking for and informing the team of those so we know something's going to be tech debt like maybe we don't know a technology is going to be sunsetted and that's coming up and we need to know about it two years in advance so we can build that into our backlog and it's not an emergency exactly that you're you're hitting it spot on the thing that i really try and and, and do and work into our processes is stay away from the emergency, stay away from the gravel roads, right? Or even worse, a brick wall. Um, if we give ourselves, you know, 18 months, we know that there's going to be end of life of some library or some resource out in the cloud that we have time to work that in because we're not doing our product team any favors. If every week we're coming up and saying, hey, emergency, the entire dev team needs to focus on this tech debt. They're going to get tired of that. So we kind of owe that to our product team to make sure that we stay in front of that enough and make sure that we can lay that in with the roadmap. Um, it just, it, it, it makes everything much more efficient. Yeah, I mean, 
if you're not doing the regular maintenance on something, it just fails at some point, right? So yep. the goal is to not be that guy who never changes the oil in their car and instead just does it on a regular basis. <laughs> you're exactly right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about, about scaling? I mean, you, you're doing some really transformative things. I mean, of course, that's transformed over time, right? As we've said, seven years ago, we weren't doing cloud stuff, right? This was on-premise. We were building virtual machines, domain join. You know, it's a whole different development experience to what we're doing today. You know, what's been the process for you in leading teams, uh, helping those teams to scale up when the time is right? You know, that we're moving from framework one to framework two to framework three. And in those steps, we have to take team members that are executing well for us and move them to the new horizon? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. We And we've been actually doing quite a lot of that over the last three years as we've been replatforming some of our um, main solutions into modern architecture. So we, it, like with everything else, I try and start small, right? We're not, I, I'm not going to line an entire army up on the hillside and have them all go through training and then most of them not use it until we actually start working with something. So I always start small and it always starts with our architect group. So for instance, when we first started getting into the cloud space and doing serverless architecture, we had a few architects, um, you know, we're, we're partners with Microsoft, not partners, but we, we have a Microsoft uh, agreement where um, they have uh, a team of architects that kind of help us. So we've, we sent people to, to Chicago or we do virtual meetings and those types of things and just really kind of figure out, you know, our, our, our footprint and, our, our, and how we're going to approach these certain things. And then the obviously you start building resources over time and the architects will go out and kind of start looking into what types of different resources and training classes there are out there and then they'll take them. And, and then once we get kind of the solution in place on how we're going to approach it, then we start bringing on the team saying, okay, um, first step is our architect is going to take you through an overview of what this solution is, what this technology is. And by the way, here are four classes that people have already taken that feel are very, very efficient um, or, you know, directly relates to what we're trying to do. So take these classes and then we just get the team in there working with them. Obviously, the architect has a lot more oversight, a lot more handholding at that point in time because there's a lot more questions. Um, but really, we allow people the space to get in there and figure it out. So, yes, that initial sprint or two um, or maybe three takes a lot. You don't get a lot of throughput, right? Because a majority of those work items uh, require a lot of investigation and learning. But on the job training or on the job learning, however you want to call it, to me is the best way. When you give somebody an objective of, I need you to build this. It's a much better learning block than saying, hey, go take this class and try and learn about this. It's, yes, go take this class, but then I need you to build this function. I need you to do, you know, create this ARM template or create this pipeline. And it, and it gives them an objective. So, I mean, you could you could use the cliche of objective-based learning, but that's, that's how we skill and upskill our team. Yeah, you really hit on something key there. It's been my experience as well, is that, it's one thing to attend a class on a particular technology. It's another thing to do it. And right. the best, there's a saying like um, where you're, you're learning and doing and teaching. And unless people do the do, unless they're experiencing building something that's part of what they're doing for work, that's an outcome that's being driven, that then has an experience that they can then replicate again and again, it's hard for them to make it stick. So I like your, your kind of incremental 
dip the toe in the water, then grow, then grow, then grow, um, and then let it let it expand in the team versus just like we're going to send everybody training and hope we do something with it. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I'm, I'm maybe a little old school in this mentality, but I still to this day think that when you have to fix something, that's that's the best way to learn. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, when you when you have to start debugging and running, you know, trying to trace something through, you you, you learn a lot in a very short amount of time. So, if you haven't had something break, you really haven't lived. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the move to modern architecture. Um, you know, particularly, you know. People talk about cloud really generically, like, oh, we're moved to the cloud or what, you know, what does that mean exactly? Um, You know, you've done quite a bit in that space, you know, independent of even just specific to company. Like when you think about the move to a modern architecture, a cloud-based architecture as a development team, what has that done for you? And what are the hurdles you've had to overcome in order to get those gains? I'll start with the hurdles to overcome. I mean, the hurdles to overcome are really the scaling, right? Getting the team prepared and getting the team upskilled to be able to work in this environment efficiently because it is a much different beast when you're working kind of in a serverless architecture. Um, we we also did some methodology changes, right? We our, our central IT department used to be in charge of all infrastructure. Well, now when you go to serverless architecture in the cloud, now you're talking, um, you know, resources and ARM templates and and things that don't require infrastructure and things that you have control over. So the development team is taking on a lot of the, you know, infrastructure as code type responsibilities and creating creating those resources with code and deploying them out. So we had the upskilling hurdle, and then we had kind of that methodology shift where we we brought in, you know, we don't treat DevOps as a team. DevOps is a culture. In, inside of our inside of the organization, so I, I always it's, it's it maybe kind of you know chintzy, but but the comment I always use in the team is from keyboard to customers. So make sure you understand how your code leaves your keyboard and gets out to the customer, which requires you to understand the pipelines and the architecture and all of that that type of stuff. So that was kind of the the, the skilling and the methodology change to take on more of. Of, of that was was kind of the hurdle. But how we moved, you know, I mean, again, I, I may sound like a broken record, but it really did start with our architects. I mean, they, they had a vision for where we wanted to be or where they wanted to be from a technology standpoint. And, you know, as I worked with that architect group, it didn't take me long to get, you know, to, to be sold on it because you have these monolithic applications that have a very, very long lead time to deploy out to production. And what moving to the cloud has done for us has really allowed us to just greatly enhance our speed to market initiative. I mean, it is, it's, it's just night and day from where we were to where we are and even where we're going in regards of being able to deploy um, rapid changes out to our customer base. And I think for me, that is the biggest thing um, when, I mean, and, and deployments are worked right into our, right into our process. So there's no, there's no drama around them. There's no 1 a.m. deployments. There's nobody staying up. There's no huge, like stressful, these deployments take 10 to 15 minutes. And guess what? If it botches, most of the time we have um, processes worked into our pipelines where we can actually just swap things back. And, and we also use a, uh, 
a robust feature um, flag management system now that we're out um, in, 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 in the cloud and able to use these things the way they're intended to. So it's just, it has, it has opened us up to be able to be much more efficient. Um, market speed enhancements uh, are, are uh, just much more rapid, rapidly paced than, than what they were before. So I just, I can't speak and I'm kind of tripping on my words because there's a lot, there's a lot of advantages that we've seen going to this, going to this modern architecture that have um, paid dividends. You mentioned, you know, the way IT used to be is that they owned the infrastructure and then it would get handed over to you and you do something with it. But mm -hmm. now with the modern architecture, that transition has really happened to the, the product development team or the development team owning the whole life cycle of the thing and all components of it. Was mm -hmm. that, you know, what does that transition look like? Um, you know, how does, how, how did you get a, the team receiving that need to feel comfortable with the whole operational cycle, like even a sense like owning the pager when something goes wrong mm -hmm. and the, you know, the, the, then inclusion of where the, the, um, partnership with the infrastructure team still kind of plays? Yeah, th that transition was actually fairly easy for us um, because we, I mean, we like to have control over our own destiny. And I know that sounds selfish, but we know that if we need to make a change or we need to do something, some other type of configuration on these resources, that we have the control to do that and be able to deploy that out in a very rapid manner, right? So we, we don't have to rely on other teams to, you know, be up with us or get a hold of somebody. We, we own a lot more of our, our own faith, so to speak. And, you know, the, the, the reduction of infrastructure means reduction of vulnerability type, um, you know, scans and management and all that type of stuff. So it, it was just, a, it, it was a really nice transition for us. And we, like I said, we started out small. We started out by, you know, doing this little piece and then this little piece. And um, eventually now it's just, if, if we're, if we need a piece of infrastructure, they're like, really? <laughs> well, why would you need this? You know, but uh, yeah, it, it was a pretty smooth transition for us. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what about on the, on the operational side? I know you want to own your destiny, right? But were they always used to? Oh, something went wrong. I had to take that bug. I got to fix it. I got to pull into the cycle, the whole cycle. Or is that was that something they were already doing, or is that something that you had to transition? Um, it you know we're we're a little um, I think different at at the, I mean we don't have a lot of off hours operational components within our solutions. We have a few solutions that are twenty four seven that people are using all the time and on the weekends. And obviously, if something happens, then, you know, you got to kind of sound the alarm. But we've always been in that boat where if our solutions were having a problem, that we owned it and we would have to reach out to other teams, you know, infrastructure networking or whatever the case may be. So now if something's going on, because we own a lot more of the resources, it's much more efficient for us to be able to work through. Um, so you don't have to get those. So I think that mentality has always been inside of the team. Um, when something goes wrong, you know, we own it and then we reach out, but now it's, we own it and we own more of our fate. So, um, you know, one transition that I'd love for you to talk about is, you know, the, the, the transition, the move from being internally development focused, not that this is necessarily a, a, a 
bad area to be focused in, but many development teams, they kind of start off being like internal development focused to now being revenue production development focused. Their platforms are part of the very nature of the business. They're building a product that's that the business was a was used to shipping something that was not a smart product or not a not a customer facing product that was digitally enabled now is, and that that part of the business is having to take on a whole new focus. You know, can you talk a little bit about what you'd recommend companies do as they start to move from my development team focuses on kind of internal operational needs versus now shifting to be uh, in revenue production needs? You know the our the greatest line I hear is customers vote with their dollars, right? And so if you're going to make the transition of internally developed focus to revenue focused is you, you have to work the customer into your process. You have to work customer feedback. You have to be engaged with your customers. And I'm not saying through, you know, getting it secondary or tertiary. I mean, having development leaders and even developers working directly with customers, seeing how they're using the product so they have a much more appreciation for how the customer is doing it. And I think that is the key component to being a revenue-focused or a revenue-generating solutions development team is your answer can't be the customer is using it wrong. (laughs) The answer is the solution isn't conducive to the way the customer wants to use it. So it's a much different method mentality when you're going to a revenue-focused uh, type of situation. So, I mean, this it's going to be ever-evolving, right? But you really, really have to work that customer feedback into your process. And I, I mentioned, you know, feature flag management in, you know, past, in, in previous um, conversation where you can, you can put features out into the field and you can allow a certain subset of customers to look at that before you actually, you know, open it up to the entire world. So you can get some really good iterative feedback right into your process much faster using, you know, modern technology, modern architecture. So that, that to me is the key is you have to work the customer into your process. Yeah, it's a huge point. Just the, the, the idea, like, oh, they're doing it wrong. They shouldn't be using the product that way. You know, right. that's, a, that's a huge point that involving them in the development process, what what needs they have, what we should be prioritizing, building something that the customer actually wants to use, customer experience journeys, like that's all just so huge to building something relevant to them. Exactly. Um, When you think about the influences that you've had in leading development teams in the way that you have and building something that's modern, that's engaging, that creates, you know, not only just, uh, leveraging the kind of technology that you're doing, but also building teams that want to stick together, that work together, that that are a great place for developers and product development managers to to find home. You know, what's influenced you? Who is I mean, who has influenced you to be able to bring that kind of leadership? You know, to be the change agent that you are. And who's who's influenced you in that way? So there, there's a few people in in that regard, and and I'll just kind of hit through a list here. So for, first and foremost, at, at a young age, my, my dad kind of instilled a work ethic in me that I think, you know, I try and lead by example and, and, and show other people that work ethic, but he, he instilled a work ethic of, you know, get your work done and then and then if you have time, um, you know, work first, kind of play later type thing, just get your work done. And, and, and you might have, there, there, there's a term out there, you know, 
about um, eating a frog. If you know you have to eat a frog <laughs> tomorrow, just just get it done right away in the morning and get it off your plate so you don't have to worry about it anymore. And I think that's the that's the work ethic that that my dad instilled in me. So that that is has has been with me um, since uh, since an early age. But um, a cu- couple of other you know kind of professional examples is I had a, a project manager at a previous organization that uh, I was pretty new to the organization and we were on a very large project together and we were it was a very, it was one of the bigger project teams that I've ever worked on in my career and we were actually using an offshore development center as well that we had that the organization has just purchased and I, I, I watched him work and keep the team kind of you know first of all the, the team was because we were using a new offshore development center was um, you know disorganized I would say and just watching this you know watching him kind of corral the team and, and get everybody marching to the same to the same drum um, was was pretty instrumental to me I, I learned a lot by, by watching him manage that project and he's now the CIO of that organization so obviously he's a very very good leader as well um, and then um, I did um, there's an author uh, Penelope Trunk who wrote a book called The Brazen Careerist. And, you know, in this book, there's a lot about, you know, learning something in everything you do. Like no job or no task is wasted as long as you're learning something. And, and I think that that was a, another kind of key component into my ability to kind of work into this, this you know, higher level leadership role of, um, you know, if, if somebody asks you to do something that you feel like, well, first of all, nothing is ever beneath you. That's the mentality you have to have. And that's Amen. kind of what this book is, it, you know, hits on in certain areas is there's no task beneath you because every task you do, um, you're learning something. And the story that she shares inside of this book is that when she, you know, when she was a vice president, she was asked to take minutes for another vice president because this person was, you know, an older generation, didn't know how to type very well. Um, and this, I think, was like 20 years ago, but but he was a master negotiator. So she, at first, you know, it's like, well, I'm a vice president. I'm going to be taking minutes. But sitting in the meetings, she learned his ways of negotiation and she actually learned how to be a better negotiator. So those kind of those underlying, you know, lessons and things that you can pull out of tasks that you're asked to do, even when you might at first think, oh, this is, you know, probably not my style. Um, so learn learn something in everything that you do, and just uh, keep elevating yourself. Um, was a big was a big key out of there. Uh, and then I'm just I'm going to pay homage to the the leadership group that I work with now. I mean we we do a lot of work elevating each other, um, making sure that we're giving each other feedback and in, in, in certain situations, you know, both good and bad, um, and and just trying to help each other be better. And I think we have a really really strong leadership group where I am now, which is very important because. You know, when you're surrounded by good leaders, you become a better leader yourself. So I would say that would be that would be my string of influences. Awesome, man. That is uh, just the ideas around um, investing yourself, continuing to be a learner, not being willing, being willing to pick up the shovel, regardless of what you're shoveling. (laughs) Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. Um, and working with people that are constantly influencing you, realizing that we all have to learn something, right? That we're not the smartest person in the room all the time. Um, and, and I can learn something from this person sitting right next to me. Uh, awesome. Exactly. Just thank you. So, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. I, it, 
you hit so many fantastic topics in such a short period of time. Really thankful for that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I appreciate you inviting me on and, and hopefully we can do this again. Awesome. And we thank you to our, uh, to our guests as well as to Matt for being part of the program today. And we will see you next time on the Change Agent Podcast. Thank you.